This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll be talking with Don West as always, and we're joined by our friend Steve Moses. At the end of the last podcast, I promised you a conversation about warning shots, so we're going to get into that first thing, and then we're going to talk a little bit more uh, in our ongoing discussion about defensive display, uh, and not only when is it appropriate, but Steve Moses is going to explain to us that there are uh, different types of defensive display, and Don West will illustrate that each one of those carries along with it its own type of legal risk so we'll navigate those muddy waters and finally we're gonna have a little conversation about the value of light having a bright flashlight on your person as part of your less lethal self-defense kit so here is more of my conversation with Don West and Steve Moses. One thing that's been conspicuously absent in all of our conversations about the spectrum of use of force and less lethal force is the idea of a warning shot. We've covered in depth the Melissa and Alexander case. She's the one whose estranged husband came in uh, allegedly physically assaulted her and she fired a shot that struck nobody uh, missed him by several feet in the kitchen of the home they once shared um, she failed to report it to 911 he called it in and she was prosecuted for attempted murder not only against him but of the two children he had that were waiting in the other room or out front of his house and uh, you and I have worked on a warning shot case as well. Um, let me ask you this to start the conversation. Warning shot, that is a that is a lethal force, isn't it? Even if it's not pointed at anyone legally. Yeah, th that's right. Usually that's where most states draw the line. Uh, you can argue about whether displaying a firearm or pointing a firearm without firing it is actually using deadly force and you'll get different answers in different places mostly that's considered not the actual use of deadly force but there doesn't seem to be any doubt that if you pull the trigger and the gun fires that you have then at that moment used deadly force there, there are some jurisdictions where you can fire a warning shot as part of the um, continuum of using deadly force. Some of the statutes specifically say threaten to use deadly force as well as using deadly force in the context of a warning shot. But once you pull that trigger, once the gun goes off, you have used deadly force um, legally. Uh, from a, a strategy standpoint, from a factual standpoint, uh, I've never seen a good scenario uh, with the Marissa Alexander uh, case, for example, there's always a debate whether it was actually a warning shot or if it was a shot at him that missed. Right. So, you, you, you know, if you have the legal right to use deadly force, 
choosing to use a, a warning shot instead is such a delicate and precarious act that um, I don't know any experts that would recommend that. There may very well be specific situations where you could justify it and clearly having made an election not to shoot somebody but to use uh, deadly force nonetheless as a warning shot and that would be the better outcome. We always think the better outcome is if when you don't shoot somebody, as opposed to when you do, if you're still able to protect yourself and others. But my goodness, the, you know, if you're looking for general rules, um, uh, one of those is never fire a warning shot. Right, because because a defensive display is one thing, but actually firing around, even if it's pointed at the sky, puts you in a whole different universe of legal risk. That, that's exactly right. And, and if you're looking at it just from that standpoint, uh, many cases we've talked about before involving potential assault charges, potential brandishing charges, where the police don't even take an interest in it, frankly, unless you have right. clearly a complaining victim and uh, or witnesses. You know, nobody gets hurt. It's viewed completely differently than even when nobody gets hurt, but a firearm is discharged. You're going to get a whole lot of attention there. And also, the critically important thing to, to understand is that the charges that flow out of a warning shot are very, very serious. Uh, it, it's not just a little bit different than brandishing. It's light years different. And in many instances, it's a mandatory prison sentence for discharging a, a weapon at somebody. So you can go from, from an assault charge to a, a attempted murder charge. Sure. sure. Pretty easy. Steve, from a firearms instructor point of view, warning shots. Uh, that's a no-go. I cannot think of uh, a good instance where that's going to work out for the concealed carrier or the armed homeowner. Uh, I understand that people may be able to uh, get away with it uh, in certain rural jurisdictions and everything, but as a just a, you know as as a standard recommendation, I would say that that is never a good idea. I'm interested to know, Steve, uh, what is likely to happen psychologically and mentally if you start firing warning shots at people that you believe to be uh, aggressors and posing a, a serious threat. You know, the, the rationale that I've heard in the warning shot cases that I've handled is, well, I just fired the shot to run them off, mm -hmm. you know, to scare them away. Uh, and in the one case that Sean and I were working on, the response was not to leave, the response was to open a barrage of fire against our client. Absolutely. It did not end well for anybody. Absolutely, because yeah. you've just told that other person that you are do not want to shoot them and perhaps are even unwilling to do so. So it's kind of like the people that mm. say, uh, just get you a 12-gauge pump shotgun. All you have to do is, uh, if you think somebody's broken into your house, is just rack it and they'll run. And I'm like going... Uh, that's not necessarily the, the case. In the one instance where I uh, captured a burglar at gunpoint, this was like 1980, uh, I had a double-action revolver. 
I held, I captured the guy at gunpoint. Uh, my wife had called the police. Uh, we were waiting for a law enforcement arrival. Uh, the guy started to get a bolder and bolder. And so in true Hollywood fashion, I was already aiming that pistol at him. I went ahead and I cocked that pistol in order to ensure his compliance. And that lasted for about 15 seconds. And then he just ignored it. So uh, I, I, there's nothing to be gained in my opinion, uh, by firing a warning shot. And just like you said, Don, in many instances, it just conveys the message that uh, I'm reluctant to be uh, to get into a gunfight and I'm probably less capable of protecting myself. Steve, I want to talk to you more about this idea of the, the willingness to use the firearm. Like we talked about Alexander Weiss when he drew the firearm and displayed it sort of down into the side against... Uh, Noah Ducart and uh, he didn't believe Alexander Weiss was willing to use it um, you know that's a problem Don had talked earlier uh, and maybe wanted to ask you about like there's varying degrees of defensive display and and you can I can imagine a scenario where you can let a attacker know that you are armed and prepared to defend yourself with deadly force if things escalate there's the old pull the jacket aside and show that you have one on your hip there's pointing to it there's putting your hand on your gun there's lots of different ways i think to reveal that you have a firearm don i'll be curious from your perspective where at what point does it become a defensive display that has legal risks associated with it. And Steve, I'd like to start with you about what's the, what's the wisdom of that. And is there a place for that in your use of force continuum? Uh, absolutely. Uh, an example might be that uh, I was, uh, you know, walking in an urban area. Uh, it was after dark uh, I was walking down the street, uh, and there were two or three uh, young men on the other side of the street. Uh, one of them looked at me, uh, said something I couldn't hear. The others turned their head, and then in unison, all three of them started moving towards me. And they moved towards me in a manner that very much suggested that they were going to cut me off, intercept me in some manner. Uh, I have at that time uh, probably a, a legitimate reason for being concerned. And so, in my opinion, a very good thing would be, hey, you guys, uh, can you all stay back and continue to move? If they ignore that, which they may very well, and continue to move on me, I can, I'm going to escalate that. Y'all need to stay back. And if I wasn't on the phone right now, I would be uh, yelling that or I would be saying that very loudly. At that point, sure. if they continue to move on me, I've got to look at the situation. I don't know these gentlemen. Uh, it's dark, or it may not be dark. Uh, they're moving in unison. There's three of them. There's one of me. I've got a disparity of numbers. Uh, I've asked them to stay back. They've ignored it. I'm probably, I'm probably in danger. At that particular point, by doing nothing more than stopping planting my feet, facing them, and basically putting my hand on my handgun. I am not drawing it. I am simply putting my handgun. I lean forward a little bit. I drop my base, and 
I say stay back very loudly, there's a very good chance that uh, that will be an effective deterrent at that situation. And in that particular ish, uh, instance, I would like to think that I've demonstrated that I had a reasonable reason to fear for my life. I knew what the threat was. I had stripped away the ambiguity, as Mike Darter would say, and I had let them know that I would defend myself without bringing that handgun out, much less pointing it. And I think that's a very legitimate uh, way of handling a situation like that. Uh, the si- and let's go ahead. No, you, I was going to say that. Let's say they come. They they come closer. Uh, you still got some options. Well, there. I still have some options uh, if I don't let them get too close. Let's say now they're at least uh, they're at least three to four arm lengths away. Uh, at this point, I can now draw the handgun and drive it to a position that is referred to as low ready. At low ready, I have both hands on the gun. I have a firing grip. My finger is absolutely straight in every one of these ready positions uh, that we teach. Uh, your finger is kept away from the trigger guard. It's as high on the firearm as possible, whether on the, uh, the frame or the slide and I drive that muzzle to the ground at a 45 degree or greater angle. Uh, What this does now is I've got the gun out. The gun never was aimed at them. It's pointed at the ground somewhere between them and myself. Uh, I look at those particular people. I've got my feet spread a little bit. I've dropped my stance a little bit, and I'm in a position right now where I can bring that handgun up and engage uh, a a deadly threat very quickly. Uh, We can typically get the average student from a low ready position inside of about eight hours of training to bring that pistol up from low ready and fire a tailing shot in less than a second. So at this particular time, uh, I've got my gun out. Uh, I've pretty much demonstrated to hopefully my satisfaction and that of a prosecutor and certainly a jury that I had a reason to fear for my life and I'm in a position now where I can bring that handgun into play uh, but I've yet to muzzle any of those particular people. And so Don, from a from a legal risk perspective, I feel like we'd have a better job making an argument for a guy who simply put his hand on his pistol and never drew it than somebody who drew it and pointed it. And and do, do you think these different thresholds that Steve's talking about would be viewed differently in the in a court of law or by a prosecutor? In my mind, it clearly would, especially when coupled with other tactical measures like the voice commands, uh, measuring the distance between you and the potential uh, attackers, taking those steps in a sort of a a progressive way rather than all at once. It's very different in this situation that whilst the one Steve was describing was pretty clearly aggressive by those individuals that were sort of closing the gap. There are other scenarios 
where you don't take those preliminary steps that you can simply wind up pointing your gun at people that intended you no harm whatsoever. Maybe they had headphones in, they weren't paying attention to what was going on, or uh, they wanted to ask a question, a relatively innocent question. So uh, where people get in trouble, of course, is that they brandish, which is displaying a gun in a rude or threatening manner or an assault type crime uh, by pointing a gun at somebody without legal justification. As uh, Steve mentioned, this idea of stripping away the ambiguity, what that really is doing is you're better understanding the reality of the moment. You're, by doing things like uh, voice commands and uh, even changing your own body position to make it clear that you're ready to deal with what they have coming communicates to them and would allow you to communicate to uh, a jury in a court of law that you took necessary steps before you went to the point of actually threatening somebody with a firearm. Uh, I also like the idea that when combined with voice commands and other kinds of uh, communication, that what Steve is talking about is his own preparedness. So there's, it takes less time. Steve, please correct me if I've misstated any of this. Uh, but it takes less time to draw and shoot the gun accurately if you start from a position with your hand already on it than if your hands aren't on it and likewise less time from a position of low ready than if it's still in your holster which gives you more time to begin to assess and continue to assess the nature of the threat against you. Uh, my guess is that people that are just giving you a hard time and maybe even haven't decided how far they want to take it, see you with your hand on something they think could be a gun but aren't sure, want to take it to the next level. But once you've pulled the gun and held it at low ready and it's clear to them that you have a gun, not only have you done some things there that are likely to de-escalate, but you've also made it clear that if they don't back off that you're prepared and able and then you know full well if they continue to be aggressive that you're going to have a need to use uh, increased force in order to stop yourself from being injured so uh, I, i'm guilty of rambling here a little bit too but um self-defense is a defense to all of those potential crimes whether it's brandishing or the aggravated assault but you need to be able to articulate the threat. And I think coming full circle, people that pull a gun too quickly because they aren't in fact facing a threat sufficient to warrant displaying a firearm uh, are in trouble. You know, it's against the law to uh, threaten somebody with a gun unless it's in response to a clear threat against you. And the hardest thing is the stuff that Steve is talking about, the stuff that he trains people to better understand the dynamics of, to prepare yourself to more reliably assess not only the threat that you are actually facing, but also in a corresponding way, the kind of response that you can legally make to it.
you know, Don, you and I once talked about the idea of thresholds when it comes to home defense, right? So we've talked in length about Ted Wafer, who, with a threat pounding on his front door, actually opened the door to the threat and shot Renisha McBride on his porch, and he's serving 17 years for second-degree murder. And then we've talked about Charles Dorsey, who faced with a similar threat banging on his door, trying to get in in the middle of the night, waited until that threat broke the door and crossed the threshold and came into the house. He fired, killed the intruder, uh, and faced no charges, right? So obviously that front door is a big threshold in home defense. And when it came to articulating the reasonableness of his response to that, waiting for that threshold to be crossed was important for his legal defense. And as we've been talking to Tatiana Whitlock and Claude Warner and Steve, as I've been listening to you talk about handling threats outside the home, it, it seems to me that there's these thresholds there as well, that a, a verbal command is a threshold that you lay down. And if they cross that threshold, you quote, uh, you know, Mike Darter saying that you're eliminating ambiguity. Now you, you have your hand on your, your weapon and you more forcefully tell them to stop. If they continue, uh, now they've crossed another threshold. If you get low ready and they're still after you, uh, I've, that's another threshold. We talk about the defender's dilemma. I'm thinking about these three people in a park at night or wherever you were. Uh, also, if they've not demonstrated specifically that they're armed, you're dealing with potentially unarmed people. And, and the problem, the defender's dilemma is when is deadly force appropriate? And the fact that you're three against one Don, doesn't doesn't the fact that you've demonstrated these thresholds, each time they pass one up, that makes the use of deadly force more justifiable because you're feared that they mean you harm despite those warnings is increased, even if they end up turning out to be unarmed after all. Yes, I, th I think that's right. Clearly in Steve's situation, when there's more than one person, the fact that they are unarmed is no way determinative on whether they can cause serious bodily harm or death. One person can with the right size and skill or putting someone in a vulnerable position, but certainly three people without question would pose a potentially lethal threat uh, if they have the opportunity to inflict that harm. Sure. And by laying down those thresholds, you've forced them to demonstrate their intent, right? And they've made it clearer and clearer with each violation. In my mind, that's exactly what you want to do so that if you ever have to explain why you did what you did, there are clear, there's a progression, there are steps that you took every opportunity first not to use lethal force, but when it became clear that they, what their intent was and that all those less lethal steps that you took or opportunities to basically back them off didn't work, then you may very well be confronted with that, you know, that that moment when you have to um, point the gun and pull the trigger. Hey, hey Sean, Steve, something I would like to yeah, uh, go ahead. like to add here is that the the steps that I described there, which would be okay, uh, if a defensive display uh, is needed, uh, my first choice is going to be to get my hand on the gun, but not pull the gun. Uh, my second choice 
uh, would be from there to get two hands on the gun and uh, drive that down into a low ready position. Now there are circumstances in which a low ready position uh, is not good. Uh, I might need to go into a high ready position which I have the gun literally, I pinned my elbows to my side, I've rotated the hand upward and I have the gun itself is actually maybe only six to eight inches in front of my face so I can see the top of the front side. Okay, why is that? Well, maybe I'm seated, or maybe I'm around a bunch of small children, or maybe I'm standing around seated persons, so I've got to keep that muzzle pointed in a safe direction. And then last, of course, would be is, okay, I have to shoot this person. So from either low ready or high ready, then I'm forced to go ahead uh, by the circumstances to orient the muzzle at that particular person. I fear for my life, it's a legitimate fear, and I am intending to shoot this person. Now, having said that, I may go all the way from not having taken any action all the way to low ready. I may go all the way to drawing my gun because I felt like I needed to shoot that person, I need to shoot that person right now, and the person started to respond when they saw what I was doing. They did something that gave me an opportunity to discontinue that and then drop the gun down to either low ready or high ready. So it is a progression, but by saying by the same circumstances, sometimes we have to go from you know not zero to thirty to sixty to ninety. We have to go zero to sixty or zero to ninety, but we can also ratchet back. Yeah, so, so what you're saying is that if you see that your defensive display has had an impact, and, mm -hmm. and we talked with Claude Warner about this in the Michael Draker case, where Marquise McLaughlin shoved him to the ground in yes. a parking lot after a verbal dispute, yes. Draker raises this gun, and we know from the security footage that McLaughlin pretty clearly took a few steps back and changed his posture. Effectively, yes. that threat was over, but caught up in the moment, perhaps believing you never pull your gun without firing it, Drake a shot and killed McLaughlin. Yes. But he could have, if he wasn't sure that the threat was over, but thought that the immediate threat of harm had passed, he had the option to now go back to a, a, a high ready, because he was sitting there, a high ready position, uh, not abandoning his defense but also yes. de-escalating it there yes 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 one of the things i really want to uh, make sure that our listeners understand uh, especially the ones that are maybe are a little bit newer to this is that things don't always progress in a linear fashion so we don't always go okay first hand on the gun well that didn't work then low ready that didn't work then aimed in that didn't you know or that was my choice you can bypass those, go back and forth. Same thing is true for just use of force. Whether use of force is the manner in which I carried myself to using, uh, you know, words, to using uh, hands, or using OC, to then using a, uh, you know, a deadly weapon. Uh, it doesn't have to go A, B, C, D, E. It can go right to the middle, it can go right to the end, and it can ratchet back and forth. And that's up to the judgment of the defender and, that's how, and how often they've 
contemplated these scenarios and, and how often they've trained, frankly, with, with people yes, who have illuminated these possibilities. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, there's a case that we haven't talked about in the podcast, but that the three of us are aware of. And this is the business owner in Nebraska who uh, faced looting and rioting and wanted to protect his bar, essentially. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and then he went out into the street in front and confronted some folks that he suspected were looters. There was a, a display of the firearm without firing it. And after that's done and the the immediate threat that he felt justified it whether it was justifiable or not is up for debate right but then he did something mysterious which was he stuck around and yes. acted almost as if that wasn't a big deal and so if we've had all this conversation about defensive display if it does resolve the situation don we talked about whether or not it's appropriate to call 911 or or to call the authorities at least and report it I think our advice is that mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. definitely feel that it was justifiable and you can articulate that, that you're better to get in front of it. But also, Steve, you need to get out of that circumstance where the threat is if you yes. resolved it. Yes, yes, yes. In that particular instance, I believe his perception was uh, I'm protecting my property. It's my livelihood. Uh, I'm not leaving it. And uh, hopefully that's kind of a one-up situation uh, for the rest of us. It's uh, you've, well, actually, uh, even for him, as we, I'm, I'm sure it would have been, uh, you need to disengage and get into a safer, uh, more defensible position as soon as possible. And then, you know, my opinion is, is that if in doubt at all, uh, you need to call the, uh, you need to call the police and, you need to uh, contact CCWSA. Let me ask you something else. We, we talked about thresholds a little bit earlier on, and I've talked about thresholds in regards to home defense, and that is we don't go we don't go outside to meet the threat, right? That we the front door is a big threshold, and Steve, Don, you guys, we've all talked about thresholds within your home that a hard corner deep in your house is more defensible than say the living room right in front of your front door um we've advised against going to the fight i personally think though that like if you have an alarm that gets tripped or you have a panic button that's an extra threshold that's a warning to the intruder that you're we're defending this home and i'm a big believer in light for home security you know, I've got lights all over the outside of my yard. I have motion sensors. Uh, I know that uh, my goal is to make my house the least attractive house on my block for someone to invade. And, and I, I try to avoid the the intrusion before it ever happens. And Steve, tell me about, we've talked about flashlights before. Is a flashlight part of your less lethal use of force or when it comes to communicating confidence for threats that you meet outside the home? Uh, I believe so. Uh, It does uh, several things. Uh, One is it tends to at night. It tends to uh, steal the other person's uh, night vision. Uh, The other thing that it does is it allows us to uh, get information we need 
I believe there was at least one case where I believe it was uh, I believe it was uh, that person that they referred to uh, the U- former UFC fighter to the finishing machine where he yeah. was being you know uh, encroached upon by that other motorist and his concern was that the other person was armed and right. of course this guy is a former UFC fighter former marine sniper just a formidable you know physical specimen and he actually shot someone with an AR-15 that was unarmed and probably largely incapable of causing him any damage. And so right. having that ability to see that. And then uh, the, the third thing uh, it does is, uh, again, I can actually use that flashlight in such a way that the other person has a very difficult time and seeing exactly where I am. Matter of fact, with some of these 800 lumen flashlights, you can almost do that to other people in the daylight. And so having a flashlight, uh, my particular favorite right now uh, is the uh, Surefire Stiletto. Uh, It's a very flat flashlight. It's about the size of a a small dispenser of sanitizer. Uh, It charges on a USB cable, uh, something like that. Uh, there's many reasons to have something for, uh, like that other than, of course, self-defense. Your car breaks down. You're trying to, you know, find your keys. You're trying to get your keys in the keyhole at night. Something like that, I think, it just needs to be on our person all the time. And people think about, well, I don't need that in the daylight. I'll just do it at night. Well, first of all, uh, if you do that, you're liable to forget it. And secondly, if you ever go into, like, movie theaters or other places, well, you can very well find... There are dark places uh, all around us uh, during the daytime. That's especially true in, uh, inside of homes and offices. All right, guys, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Next time, we're going to talk with Steve Moses again. We're going to talk about folks who are conflict magnets who tend to seek out conflict or at least conflict finds them and how to develop the judgment and forethought to avoid those circumstances until then thanks for listening be smart stay safe take care